welcome to the Property Portfolio Podcast with Mark Stokes and Nigel Green. Every week we inspire and guide you towards success in the world of property development, mentorship and fundraising. Before we jump into today's episode, a reminder to join us at equacademy.co.uk where you can gain free access to hundreds of videos and templates to help you on your property development journey. I'm delighted to welcome the world-renowned Daniel Priestley. Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Great. And Daniel, many of our audience will know your your background uh, and you're a a real family figure um, in their homes with many of your books. But could you give a little background and introduce yourself to our audience? For sure. Yeah. So a lot of people know me through my books. I've written four books on entrepreneurship. My background is as an entrepreneur. I started a company at age 21, you know, so I got into entrepreneurship very early. I grew up in Australia, but moved to the United Kingdom uh, in 2006, so about 12 years ago. And um, today I run an entrepreneur accelerator where we have about two and a half to three thousand entrepreneurs that we're uh, looking at their entrepreneurial journey and looking at the steps that they're taking and helping them through that path so i get to have a lot of oversight into different businesses different industries different mistakes um, different victories you know so that's kind of where i draw those insights from that must give you an incredible insight into the skills that make people successful, some of the challenges. Well, it's almost a little unfair. I mean, I get to see across the board, I get to see different um, different approaches to business and life, you know, and I get to ask really nosy questions and, uh, and sort of get to see behind the curtain as well as to what's happening with a lot of different businesses. So I love, I absolutely love what I do. I love my day job and, uh, and I love the business. You know, we're a global business. We, we're in Australia, Singapore, the UK and the USA. So, you know, geographically we see some differences as well. And then I do a little bit of speaking. So the books have kind of given me a platform to go around, you know, talking uh, about entrepreneurship as well. So, you know, it's a lot of fun, but I guess I'm up to my elbows in entrepreneurs. Fantastic. So before we talk about, um, you know, the, the, the great things you're doing now, maybe could we wind back and could you maybe reflect with us um, where your first interests in entrepreneurship were and mm. the first triggers? Well, long before I knew what the word entrepreneur was or meant, I had an entrepreneurial spark actually that started with a real spark. It was my mum cooking in the kitchen and uh, some oil caught fire and jumped up on the curtains, burnt the kitchen and uh, smoke filled the the, uh, the house and damaged a lot of the curtains and the furniture and all that sort of stuff. And uh, fortunately, you know, it wasn't dangerous or, you know, it was, it was a shock, but it wasn't dangerous, but a lot of stuff was damaged and, um, it was covered by insurance. So, uh, we were going to throw away all these things that had been damaged and I got it in my head and I was only age 10, just to put you in the picture there. I was 10 years old and I said, do you mind if I clean these things and sell them? So I kind of, you know, got the cleaning products and started cleaning them up and realized that there was all sorts of things. And I realized that um, maybe I should have a, a garage sale. So I designed a flyer and a poster. I put it up in the milk bar. I put flyers out around the neighborhood. And then I paid, uh, I borrowed some money from dad uh, to put a classified ad for a, um, a garage sale. And I started putting as much as I could into this garage sale and putting the tables out and all that sort of stuff. And the day before the garage sale, when I was getting everything ready, I realized I didn't have enough stuff and uh, and I needed to solve this problem. So I thought to myself, I'm going to go around to all the neighbors and I'm going to keep a track in my notebook, notebook 
and I'm going to do a 50-50 joint venture split with them um, so they can sell things and uh, and it's 50-50 split. So I, I end up getting boxes and boxes of things and creating like, you know, a little system for keeping track of it all. And uh, and I, I ran a successful garage sale. I made $300 uh, thereabouts. Uh, it was enough for a Sega Master System and a, uh, a green BMX bike, which was a BMW for a 10-year-old. Yeah. Uh, and um, and that was my first experience as, a, as an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, just kind of buying and selling stuff and, and doing deals with the neighbors. And then, you know, maybe six months later, I wanted I wanted something else that uh, I had my heart set on. And, um, and dad and mum said to me, well, why don't you do another garage sale and go and find more stuff from neighbors and you know, we don't, we're not going to set fire to the kitchen again, but, uh, but certainly you can, you can find new things. And then I kind of was hooked. So all through my teenage years, I was running dance parties. I was selling flowers every Valentine's day. Um, I would dress up in dad's tuxedo and go door to door selling roses. Uh, I'd buy a hundred roses for $40 and sell them for $4 each. So, uh, yeah, all sorts of fun things like that. Okay. And was there was there any um, particular individual in your life who inspired you? Or? Yeah, we had some family friends. Um, my mum was a local politician, uh, so she was a, a local councillor, and we actually had a lot of um, you know she would give town hall events and those sorts of things. And I met a lot of property developers because property developers try and get to know the local councillors as best they can. And I met um, local entrepreneurs when I was fourteen. I got a job at McDonald's, and the owner of our McDonald's. Donald's kind of, he saw that I was interested in business, took me under his wing, um, you know, and, and we sat down and had some great chats actually. And we talked about the importance of systems and brand. And I, I did two and a half years at McDonald's uh, where I just absolutely loved it. And I, I embraced it as though it was my own business and, and kind of, I wanted to know about service and you know, how do we, how do we improve things? And um, I, you know, I would, I'd do the production for the kitchen and uh, I'd, I'd volunteer for early morning shifts and late night shifts so I could see all the different facets of the business. But from about 14, 15 up to about 16, 17, I was working at McDonald's and I was learning more and loving it more than I was loving school. Real systematic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and everything I was learning, I was comparing to McDonald's. So, you know, I remember learning economics in school and thinking, you know, demand and supply. And I had very real experience of demand and supply. You know, when, when the cinema uh, had a big movie finish up and the, they all came rushing in, we had to be ready for that, you know. So I, I was actually, you know, I'd, I'd mentally connect with those concepts because I was um, embracing, uh, embracing the role at McDonald's. So I learned a lot from McDonald's and I learned a lot from the owner. It's a great insight into the, the pace of, of change and for sure over the last 20, 25 years been a huge amount of change. I think we can all guarantee that pace of change. Oh, well, you know, one of the saddest things is that, you know, I walk past a few of the McDonald's now and they have these giant touch screens where you can order. And I think to myself, you know, so many people got their start in at McDonald's or Starbucks or, um, or a supermarket. And now they're replacing all of these starter jobs, you know, these jobs where you get your foot on the, on the rung. I know some wonderful 20 somethings, early twenties, and they all through their teens worked at Waitrose 
and they got a real experience of, of team and business from being behind the checkouts at, at Waitrose. And now, you know, um, most shopping centres are replacing with self-checkout and those kind of things. And I, I feel disappointed that a lot of young people will actually miss that opportunity to get their foot into a um, into a business oh, in that was, way. I was in McDonald's uh, only yesterday and it was the first time I've used one of those self-checkouts. And I have to say, what a sterile experience. Yeah, trading teens for screens. It's disappointing. I mean, you're, you're, a, you're a proud dad. I've got two. Two kids. Yeah. How old are they? Uh, three and a half and six months old. So they're maybe not quite into the, the screen stage of uh, iPads. We're, we're trying to, de- uh, to delay that as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, that, that pace of change and um, the. the the contact increasingly that I fear the younger generation are, are having is, is is virtual friendships, and they're, they're considering their um, their inner circle by how many likes, and and I'm not demeaning that side, and mm. be part of part of a profile or plan or, or marketing platform, but um, there is a, certainly a shift in interpersonal qualities. Yeah, and it, it's hard to know because you know I, while I 100% agree with you. There's actually an amazing level of contact and connections that kids are uh, are going through. You know, we might sit there and say, oh, you know, based on my standards of how I grew up, you're not interacting with the people in this room, you know, therefore you're antisocial. And yet, from a different perspective, simultaneously, you know, having a conversation with 12 people geographically scattered all over the country is also quite impressive and quite social (laughs) at a very different level. And it's, I find, you know, in one sense with that, you know, it's, it's a really hard one for parents because you don't want to deprive your children of the schools, the, uh, so the skills and the techniques that they're going to need for their future, which is obviously going to revolve around, you know, computers and systems. But likewise, there's something magical about the ability to be present with someone. Uh, I think I retired from corporate life about two and a half years ago and I spent many years of my latter corporate life being at home but not being present in the moment with my kids. I might have been there, we might have been having dinner, but I'd be thinking of the, the minutes of the last meeting or the board meeting. Yeah. Um, I, it really does resonate that being present in the moment. So as a, as a, as a young entrepreneur, as you sort of graduated into, into adulthood, can you maybe share with us some of the, the, the greatest successes you had and some of the things you learned along the way? So a very early success was a, a nightclub party that I ran at about 18 years old. And... It was about a thousand kids who showed up at twelve dollars a head, and I had gotten everything sponsored. Um, so the venue was sponsored, the DJ, the prizes, and I'd put on this party. And I was the king for the night. You know, I was up on the DJ box throwing skateboards out, and not throwing skateboards at people, but handing them out as prizes and flicking CDs across the room, and all these. You know, it was great. It was a great party, and um, you know, it was one of those first experiences of like wow I've really pulled this together and um, I remember going home that evening with a money belt uh, or two money belts because I had $12,000 in small notes um, strapped to my body and you know to put that to give that some perspective at that time I was also Pizza Hut delivery driving for $3.25 a delivery I was working behind a bar for $8 an hour 
at two o'clock in the morning. You know, I was, I was knocking on doors, setting appointments for roof insulation at $15 an appointment. So to earn $12,000 in a night was, was a pretty amazing opportunity. My friend and I, we went down to the Ferrari dealership the next day to, to pick out the Ferraris that we would one day own. <laughs> so how would you, um, could you share with us maybe how, how you could create that allure, create that attractiveness to people? How do you get how do we get them there? Yeah, well, I, I mean, we designed a flyer. Um, it was just a little little flyer. Uh, we printed up hundreds of these, thousands of these flyers. We did it, so a couple of things. So the flyering was one strategy, and we would uh, go to the local schools and hand out because it was a it was an age fifteen to it was fifteen to eighteen, under eighteens, and from fourteen to I think it was from fourteen to seventeen was the age group that was allowed in, and it was based on a university assignment called identify an unmet need and I said well actually when you hit about 14 to 17 you're too young for a nightclub but you're wanting to do fun things at night you're wanting to do these things so I identified this unmet need in my local area we had so the first party was a lot of flyers and we just went out to schools and shopping centers and handed out lots of flyers and because it wasn't genuinely and it was genuinely an unmet need so um people bit our arms off they uh, only had one rule which was only give flies to girls um and what we realized is if the girls were going the boys were going um so so we just went around giving all the flies to the girls and uh we knew that uh that was going to cause a domino effect and then the second party because we ended up doing six of these uh across the course of a year the second party was um we we sold the naming rights of the party to the local radio station so it became the heat fm dance party and they had to give us seven thousand dollars worth of radio advertising in exchange for the naming rights and they filled it so we stood in the middle shaking hands with the we we actually got the venue for free because we had seven thousand dollars worth of radio advertising and we got the radio advertising for free because we had a great venue and we kind of stood in the middle doing joint ventures and partnerships i have a feeling you're now going to tell me you didn't even pay for the skateboards we didn't of course not no we had Surf Skate Australia was our was our sponsor, um, and I'd found a surf shop where I got a chance to talk to the owner, and we we made it. Uh, he was the main prize, and HMV gave us CDs to give away. Yeah, no, I mean it was it was great fun times because once we once we cottoned on that we could actually just get everyone we could do joint ventures for everything and stand in the middle, the parties became very very easy. So we just looked for who already had distribution. The other sponsor was McDonald's, so I knew from my mcdonald's days that mcdonald's employees have to go in and out of the crew room all the time so i just created big posters for the crew room and we went around to every mcdonald's and every kfc and all of those places and just had special offer for mcdonald's crew show your mcdonald's uh, employee card and um and get in you know get a discount but we knew that mcdonald's employees were perfect to come to our parties because they were good typically good kids they had some money and and um, yeah, and we, you know, they were our kind of people. So, uh, so we had, we had these, we sponsored the crew rooms, or we created, we created stuff for the crew rooms, and um, and it was free distribution, really. And how old were you? Eighteen. Eighteen. Yeah. So I've uh, I've been involved in business, and I've set businesses up, and I've restructured, and also had to close businesses as well. And from my perspective, I've probably learned just as much out of failures and adversity as I have out of successes. 
Could you maybe share some areas where you've seen not going quite so well and what you've learned? Yes. Well, I'd say this. All of entrepreneurship is failure. My experience with entrepreneurship is just failure after failure after failure after failure. And some of the things that I'll give you as examples is that you know, I would take an ad later on in my career, you know, we, we would advertise in the newspaper and you'd stick an ad in the newspaper that goes out to 1.5 million people and you get 70 phone calls. And when you think about it, you've failed 1.4999% of the you know million people have not responded to the ad. So it's a massive failure to get 70 phone calls off of, a, off of a, an ad that is in front of 1.5 million people. And then you you know, you might generate, you know, a hundred warm leads and 10 people buy from you. So you've just had a 90% failure. So the thing I try to impress upon people about entrepreneurship is actually the bigger you get, the more you are a failure. You, you know, you, 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 you generate millions of impressions on, on Facebook ads, tiniest percentage of people will even click on a link, tiniest percentage of people book into anything. So, so essentially the bigger you want to be, the, the more you actually have to embrace the fact that most people don't care about what it is that you're up to or what you're doing. Um, as far as kind of punch in the face failure, I've had a few of those as well. So before the age of 25, I built a business that was uh, doing a million a month, uh, $10.7 million. When I was age 24, we, we generated $10.7 million in sales. And total burnout, I spoke at 174 events to promote um, what we're doing in one year. So three a week, every week. Um, all up and down Australia. I employed the wrong people. Uh, I employed some great people. You know, there's all sorts of things were going wrong. But ultimately, we end up having a big falling out with our partner and having to sell the business too cheap and then do a major pivot and restructuring and all that sort of stuff in order to kind of move forward. I learned a lot there and I actually really learned a lot about my strengths and the ability to choose the right partners and, and, and manage partnerships. Uh, in 2007, when there was a financial crisis, so I'd rebuilt the business again and then no sooner had I rebuilt it in London, we were up to about £4 million in revenue and um, and the GFC hit and we dropped. In one year, we dropped from £4 million in revenue to 400000 and I can tell you it was actually harder to make 400000 the following year than it was to make $4.4 million the, 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 um, the year before in sales. And one of the really interesting things that happened is that I tried to sell the business at that point and I didn't get a very high offer for it. And I spoke to a consultant, a very, very wise consultant who had worked in fund management. And he said, well, your business isn't really a business. It's a brokerage model. I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, you don't really own the intellectual property. It's not yours. Um, you're promoting other people's products. You're promoting other people's stuff. And therefore, you know, you get traction. He said, Daniel, you get traction very quickly because you take proven products in other markets and you bring them into this market. And that's a great method. But ultimately, your business isn't worth a lot because you don't own the thing that's valuable. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's really interesting. And it was around that. And he gave me that sentence, that, that famous sentence, which is in my books, which is income follows assets. And he said, you don't own the assets, but the income follows the assets. And he actually said, go look at the business. Said, even though you're doing it tough, go look at the people who own the product. They won't do it anywhere near as tough as you because they're they own the asset. And sure enough, one particular speaker from Texas that we were bringing into London, he decided to cut us out as his promoter and um, and promote himself at a cheaper rate. But he ended up making more profit during the recession 
with dealing with a smaller number of people by cutting us out of the loop <laughs> didn't really affect his bottom line at all you know so it was one of those really it was a big lesson so um so during that period of time i went wow okay i need to figure out what is my intellectual property what assets do i have what do i own what what do i know and it was during that process that i uh, created the key person of influence methodology the um accelerator programs and i really poured all of the learnings from you know the roller coaster i'd been on to into our own set of intellectual property and um and then we've built a very successful and very stable business off the back of that where we've just grown every single year now and um you know and and we're, we're solid we're robust we attract great people we attract great clients the business just grows i've had you know kids along the way and all sorts of things and the business just keeps plowing ahead and, and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger each year you know and it's really you know it came from the lessons that i learned after the hardship of the of the financial crisis was there a tipping point at that at that time when when you started your organisation in that form? Would the correlating impact on the amount of time return on time invested did that all of a sudden change? Oh, big time! So the more digital assets and the more intellectual property that I created faster the business grew with actual regardless or, or less correlated to my time and you know that was that was actually quite extraordinary so we had a like even last year we had a, a big double digit year of growth on profit and uh, revenue and we're, we're already a multi-million pound business globally um, we had a big growth year and that I took I took six to eight weeks off for paternity leave um, I couldn't travel most of the year you know there's just I mean I hardly spoke at events compared to what I used to so in the first business the brokerage business it was just it was just actually brute force so what was working in our favor um, when I analyze it now with a you know with a little bit more wisdom is that it was just a team of young men who full of testosterone no family no other commitments and we just hit the phones you know we, we did brute force work we we actually did the work that family guys couldn't do or, or family people couldn't do so we were just forever picking up phones and hustling and making sales and you know plowing through leads and really that's that's kind of what made the money in the early days but you just can't do that for the rest of your life you can do it you know in your 20s um but you certainly uh, it's not a it's not going to be a happy life i i found in, in corporate life um that, well, I saw at first hand that, that many people, when they're managing teams, they want to keep their teams in their boxes. Um, for fear, to be honest, they're almost like a civil service attitude of, well, if they can do my job, well, I'm going to remain redundant. And I decided to, to actually embrace that and say, well, that's great. If yeah. they can do my job, I can take the next level up and go on and inspire yeah. myself and others in yeah. different ways. And, uh, yeah. And almost allowing people to drive upwards. This is the thing. And um, if you can create assets that do the work, I mean, digital assets at the moment are phenomenal. So we just look at all the things that have to be done in the business and we just create digital assets around them. And every year our revenue per employee goes up, you know, and that's actually the secret to our growth. We measure revenue per employee. And, um, you know, in the early days, you know, it's, um, you know, it might have been 80,000 pounds a year and then it gets, you know, gets up around 200,000 pounds a year because you keep putting digital assets 
in there and those digital assets give every single employee superpowers. And, um, you know, so we're always looking to re- how do we make something, how do we make a little thing redundant using a, uh, a digital asset? Yeah, so that's, I mean, when, you know, the great thing with being an entrepreneur is the more you make yourself redundant, the more you move to a higher level. Absolutely. And we, as we were talking before the podcast, you know, we've, we've got six kids between us and kids and iPads and iPhones all over the place uh, is, is a real potential. Do we protect them? Do we allow them to embrace that? But I've seen, um, and I, I continue to challenge my own thought process on the education system, the formal education mm-hmm. system that our children have. And I take my Emily, my youngest daughter, she's seven, I have 11 precious years before she's 18. Yeah. And I, I don't want to look back in, in life and feel as though I could have influenced her better. Mm-hmm. So how can we how can we help transform and educate our children Possibly not being contrarian to the schooling system, but in addition to the schooling system. Yeah, the I mean, there's a guy called Robert Kiyosaki who wrote the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, and I think it was him who gave gave a quote where he said, you know, the the poor send their kids to school for education, and the rich educate their kids at the dinner table. Um, you know, and um, and I, I, that resonates, you know, because. I think a lot of the great experiences that you get uh, outside of school, the school's there to do the basics. Um, in fact, if you study the history of the schooling system, it's very much to create factory workers. You know, so I know the story incredibly well, which is essentially it goes back to the Napoleonic Wars, 1806 Battle of Jena. Um, King of Prussia loses a battle and decides that he needs to train soldiers from age four or five years old and creates a schooling system, a compulsory schooling system that would begin to train soldiers. And then the governor of Massachusetts did his PhD in Germany in the mid-1800s, saw this compulsory schooling system that was basically a military-style system, went, wow, that's what we're looking for. Our industrialists want that, took it back to Massachusetts and introduced the compulsory schooling system with a twist, which is how do we create uh, workers who will run the factories um, or work the factories. And, um, and the whole genesis of our compulsory schooling system goes into creating factory workers. And it was designed by people who owned factories um, and, and to give them the skills of doing monotonous, repetitive tasks, starting work on a bell, finishing work on a bell, to become linear thinkers, not lateral thinkers. Uh, so all of that was by design. So in many ways, you know, this is not some conspiracy theory. You, you have to, if you if you want your children to, to become leaders and to be the types of people who own a factory, not work in one, you have to do something beyond that schooling system because, you know, the fruit from a poisonous tree will always be poisonous fruit and um, a schooling system designed for factory workers will always produce factory workers. Yeah. There's a great, um, great TED talk by Sir Ken Robinson. Love that talk. On creativity. Yeah. Um, and if you think of, I believe, you know, organised, the real forward thinking, the Googles, the Apples of the world, but maybe the Teslas, and what they're tapping into appears to be that that younger intuition. My, my, my kids at four, I don't know if I'm proud to say this or not, but at four, they could use an iPad and immerse themselves. Mm. And fair play to the engineers and designers who are able to create a product like that. Um, but back to your point and, and the, the great content in the books and, and things that you've produced, our children readily absorb digital assets mm-hmm. maybe a whole lot better than yeah. generations before them. So I think maybe, maybe certainly I, I've missed in, in the last few decades 
connection as a, as a parent mm. yeah i i feel i mean you're probably you're a few years um beyond where we're at because we've only got a three and a half year old as my oldest um and we're really doing everything we can to teach social skills so from a very very young age xander has learned how to shake hands look people in the eye when he meets somebody new he says hello my name's xander what's your name and he'll do that at the coffee shop. He'll do that standing, waiting in line. Hello, what's your name? And he shocks people because he's so confident. And we always say, you know, when you meet someone new, what do you say? He says, hello, what's your name? My name's Xander. And, uh, and those kind of things. And he puts his hand out to shake hands with people. And he knows that when he shakes hands, he looks them in the eye. So we do those kind of things. We've also been really careful with a few things like... For example, someone said to me, oh, uh, he needs to learn that no means no. And I said, why? I said, because if I had have learned that no means no, I wouldn't have done anything. I, I said, I, I'm actually really quite proud that he's a natural negotiator. So, you know, when I say no to Xander, if I, he says, oh, you know, can I, can I, um, the Christmas gingerbread house, can I have some of the Christmas gingerbread house? And I say, no, 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 you can't have any Christmas gingerbread house. Just a little bit. I say, no, no, you can't have a little bit. He goes, can we look at it? <laughs> and I think to myself, you know what? That is such great natural negotiating. Yeah. So I say, yeah, okay, we can look at it. And we look at it. And then he says, what about just a smarty? Because it's got these smarties on it. I say, okay, a smarty. He goes, can we both have some? And I say, okay, well, we can both have some. And actually what I want to teach him is that no didn't mean no, that actually, that actually finding a way, finding a negotiation strategy worked, which is why I deliberately now say no and then deliberately change my mind, yeah. which is bad parenting because so many people say no. If you say no, you must never change your mind or else they learn that no, you know, no might mean yes. Well, guess what? In business, no might mean yes. You might, uh, you know, follow up a week later and a week later and a week later and then the order might come through. So, you know, you know, I always play around with questioning some of those assumptions. Well, I had a fascinating experience with my, my two girls are, are seven and nearly 11, Emily and Katie, just for Christmas. And for pretty much all of last year, they've been on and on. They wanted a, a hamster each. <laughs> no. And we've got a dog and uh, <laughs> didn't feel as though we needed any more animals in the house. I don't think any dad feels like they need any more hamsters. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I said no quite a lot of times, let's put it that way. And um, they decided a different tact and they presented it to me two weeks before Christmas. And they presented me about four or five pages of A4 wow. on their research. And they said, Daddy, don't say no, please, just hear what we've got to say. And they went through, this is what a hamster is, this is what it eats, this is where it lives and where it doesn't, and this is how you look after it and what it needs and a list of everything. Wow. And they presented it. And little look on their faces was, was they've done their research and they they were they kind of knew i was going to still going to say no but actually they've done right? i couldn't say no yeah do you, do you know and there's a great lesson in that presenting an idea you know properly gets gets you a yes and i mean there's there's that lesson to go back and say you know when you just flippantly asked 
the answer was flippantly no. When you presented a proposal, this is what's called a proposal, and when you present a proposal, then the answer is more likely to be yes. And you could you could even show them, you know, Daddy does property development. If I was to say, would you like a two-bedroom house, probably wouldn't get a yes. But when I present it with a brochure and a proposal and the costings and the financials, then the, the property sells. Yeah. You know, there was some conditionality. Yeah, of yes, course. Yeah, some T's and C's. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So the the education system, I don't believe it was ever designed to outsource our kids' education to the system. Yeah. Of the education system is highly under resourced, and they, you know, teachers do do a great job. Yeah. Yeah. They're not there to. And they're they're not there to to turn your kid into a superstar. Mm-hmm. Um, you you need a bit of superstar parenting for that. Yeah. But I I I'm. I feel like the most important thing for me is making sure that that the important lessons get learned and that they can learn. Yeah, they're going to learn great lessons in school, rightly or wrongly, and I hope they don't listen to this, but rightly or wrongly, I don't think I personally am going to be terribly difficult about, you know, getting A's and for every subject and all that sort of stuff. I think for me the most important lessons is that they're learning how to learn, um, they're learning what their own personal learning style is, they're learning social skills, um, how to handle confrontation, um, how to find information when they when they want it. Yeah, those those are the sort of skills that are most important that I'm looking for um, with my kids. Uh, you know, you know, provided things don't change very much in the next few years. You know, I've got a very fortunate situation that during school holidays and breaks, um, when they're old enough, they can go and do work experience in the, because, you know, I've got a group of companies, so we can do IT, we can do publishing, we can do video production, we can uh, do event management. So there's like a host of things that the kids can do, you know, just for learning all sorts of interesting skills. You know, at a very young age, I want to take them down to the Apple store and, and actually do lessons. If they're interested in iPads, then they've got to go and do lessons on how to use an iPad to create, not to consume. You know, so those sorts of things. Yeah. And one area that I find it quite difficult to, to find real stimulus in the market for the youngsters is how they can start to set longer-term objectives and mm. goals while still retaining the creativity, the agility and yeah, the fun and being youngsters. Yeah. Um, and as, as, as adults quite often, we find it hard not to live on a day-to-day basis and have a longer plan. Have you got any maybe thoughts of, of how short, medium, long-term planning has served you? As you yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm not a huge one around uh, goals. I personally um, probably flies a little bit contrarian, but I'm not, I'm not a giant goal setter. The reason for that is because we live in such unpredictable times, um, I don't want to close myself off for great opportunities that may come along in the pursuit of a goal. I also don't want to delay happiness, you know, because I found that when I was very goal-driven, one thing that happened to me when I was in my 20s is that I would set a goal that we're going to do $5 million this this year. And if it was 4.5 and we'd worked our asses off for it, I was still very disappointed. You know, I haven't hit my goal. And all year I was waiting until we hit the goal to be happy, to to enjoy life. So, you know, one of the things that I report 
replace that was was just understanding identity. So for me, I'm more interested in identity and purpose. So vision, mission, values um, is more important. Purpose is more important to me. And anyway that I can get closer to, you know, a closer alignment to my vision, my mission, my values and my purpose, then I'm really not locked into how to do it. I'm locked into the identity, you know, that sort of stuff. So, so for longer term planning, you know, so for example, uh, the vision of Dent is that uh, we focus entrepreneurial teams on the world's most meaningful problems and that we build a global network of thousands of entrepreneurs who are doing meaningful work. So that's the vision of the vision uh, business. The, the mission is that we can be in at least 20 cities around the world with at least 100 entrepreneurs coming through accelerators in each city. So to actually incubate and accelerate 2,000 companies per year is our next milestone, our next mission milestone. Our values are to be brave, to have fun and to make a dent in the universe. So, um, you know, so it's all about, you know, stepping outside comfort zone in the moment. Are we being brave? Are we having fun? Are we doing meaningful work? Are we making that dent in the universe? So they're, they're very values led um, type things. You know, and that purpose is to develop companies that stand out, scale up and make a dent in the universe. So it's all very aligned. It's one, one picture. So for us, it's not about long-term planning. I mean, naturally we have plans, but it's very much about are we being who we said we'd be? And that's more important. And then what tends to happen is we uh, actually shock ourselves. The other thing I, I learned is that goals tend to be about scale. They just tend to naturally be about these kind of outcomes that relate to milestones and, and, and achieving certain scale. And what I kind of learned is that when you focus on quality, you get scale. Um, and if you focus on scale, you sacrifice quality a lot of the time. So, you know, I'm really careful that actually we make goals about quality, not quantity. So, you know, I know that if we make our goal about reliably transforming businesses, if we if we make our goal about creating a world-class portal that our clients log into every single week to improve their business, then by creating high-quality digital assets, by creating things that do great work, um, you end up achieving scale. So if you imagine, like an interesting example is Rolex. Rolex made a commitment to the quality of their product in the early 2000s by deciding to bring the movement of a Rolex in-house. So in 2004, they, they actually in-housed the Rolex movement because they thought they could actually do a better job of the movement than the company that was doing it. For about 100 years, Rolex's actual guts, its, its, its movement was um, a different company. It wasn't actually Rolex. And in 2004, they brought it in. And what that has done to this brand, I mean, Rolex has exploded in the quality of the brand and the scale of the brand from 2004 to today. I mean, it's always been a desirable brand, but it's really gone up a, up a gear and kind of winner takes all in the prestige watch market. You know, it's kind of knocked a lot of, it's ruffled a lot of feathers. But it was a pursuit of quality first that got them the scale. And if you imagine, imagine the opposite. Imagine they pursued at any cost, we just want to be in a million locations or we want to, you know, we want to sell a million watches. We don't care if they tell the time. We don't care if, you know, they're, 
you know, they're, they're, the quality suffers. We just, the big goal is to be in a million locations at all cost or, I mean, sorry, you know, sell a million watches at all cost. You, you know that that's going to lead to a, a company that doesn't scale because as soon as the products, you know, the quality's not there, people don't want it anymore. So um, a big part of this goal setting process for me is just make all the goals about the quality of what you do and let the quantity of what you do speak for itself. So when I think about our business, I simply ask myself the question, are there more people out there who are going to resonate with our vision? Yes. Are there more people out there who are going to resonate with our mission? Yes. And our values? Yes. Great. So you know what? We're on track. We need to make our assets digital. We need to focus on the quality and let it expand to the more people who want that. And if we're the best in the world at what we do, we'll always do well. So we ask ourselves the question, all the time, are we being the best in the world at quality? Are we being the best in the world at what we do? And if we're, you know, if we can answer yes to that, then we're, then we're, um, on track. So short term, you know, uh, we have planning meetings every week where we have to name our six things, um, which is basically no more than six priorities for the week. And it's just week to week, you know, what, what needs to happen this week. Um, we do quarterly retreats with the whole team where we're mapping out the quarter. Um, and it's really, it's just, it's, we look at what are the assets that the business needs? How are we going to create really high quality assets? What are we going to achieve this quarter around that? I think, I think it's highly pertinent given where we are in Mercedes-Benz world. Yeah. You know, the home of their Formula One team, that high-performance culture yeah. is, I believe, what you've just described to me. Yeah. And that, you know, attention to, to, to every detail there. And I, I see a lot of the high-performance culture characteristics in the drive that really drove you to write books mm. um, could we just spend a few minutes talking about your, your books because there's some phenomenal work there so which was the which was the first book <laughs> so the books go in an order which is entrepreneurial revolution is about getting into this entrepreneurial world and starting something and, and building a business that's right for the times that we're in and then that would lead you to wanting to be a key person of influence um, at what you do and then that says okay now i can do this great work. I want to become oversubscribed. Uh, so the third book is oversubscribed. I want to get lots of people coming to us and doing work with us. And then the fourth book is about, you know, the ability to reach more people, digital assets. So it's called 24 assets. So that's the order in which they should be uh, read. The order that they were released is key person of influence came out first. And the reason that happened is I was writing entrepreneur revolution and it just wasn't flowing. And then I hit this kind of point in the book I'd written about 7,000 words and then I started writing this point in the book about positioning yourself as a key person of influence and that just, it just flowed. It just all came out. And when I was kind of looking at the book and the structure of the book, I went, oh, these 7,000 words at the start just don't fit. I need to chop them off and then just focus on this concept, key person of influence. So I wrote that book, released it, and it was a bestseller. So it's it's done more than 100,000 copies. However... About a year later, I, I came across the, and I, and mind you, I'd never wanted to be an author. So I just thought, you know what? It was just me exploring thinking and unpacking ideas. And I never thought I'd do a second book, but I found these 7,000 words and I went, Oh, wait a second. These are, these are good. They just didn't fit with that book. So that was Entrepreneur Revolution, which I then went and wrote that book. And then everyone kept asking me about the campaigns because around that time we were running 500-person theatre-style events with top speakers, people saying, how is it that you fill these over and over and over? How are you filling the events? And I said, oh, it's campaign planning, promotion, 
they're like, oh, you know, why don't you, why don't you do the aggressive sales thing? Like everyone else is doing real aggressive selling from stage and all that. I said, well, for us, it's part of our strategy of maintaining ourselves as oversubscribed. I said, it's not about aggressively selling. It's about being oversubscribed. And when I'd explain that to people, they go, wow, that's a different mindset. So for us, it's about, you know, if you have a big queue up at the door, you know, you don't have to try and sell people to get in. Everyone's waiting to get in. So how do you create that energy, that exclusive nightclub energy or, you know, so everyone kept asking me about that. So I, I, I had a lot of conversations about it. I did some research into companies that got themselves oversubscribed and, and that was just a fun book to write. And then 24 assets was very much where my head was at when we were expanding into seven cities. How do I create digital assets that are useful in seven locations around the world? And I discovered there's 24 categories of digital assets that you have to create. And when you create all of them, then the business really scales, takes off. It was interesting that you maybe never set out to be an author. <laughs> I know. And, uh, and I'm sure, well, as you alluded, it's not easy to bring bring sometimes the thoughts to bear, but you had a real overriding passion in what you did. And that must have really... Yeah, I, I discovered... I discovered through blogging that I would get a clarity of thought in the writing process that was almost kind of addictive. Like if I could write the idea down, if I could write a blog about it, it was like, wow, that's, that's like a real distillation of the thinking. And, um, and I actually only really kind of got into writing books because I wanted to capture the learnings and distill my thinking and find, find some sort of a truth um, and I found the writing process is kind of like, you know, how you, how do you sharpen the sword? You know, you need something to grind it against. And for me, writing a book was, was that thing that allowed me to sharpen my thinking on something. Do you ever have moments of doubt along the way? Well, I suppose because I don't care if they sell or not. Um, I'm just enjoying the process and I'm enjoying the thing and I'm also writing to see where it takes me. So I'm writing a book at the moment um, about companies that uh, consistently double 10 times. So I'm looking at companies that have doubled them in size 10 times or more. So you get McDonald's, Nike, um, Microsoft, you know, all these kind of really big companies because when you double 10 times you get big. So I'm... Um, and I'm, I'm writing the book and seeing where it takes me. And it's taken me over into military. So looking at military units and, you know, sections and, um, and all of that kind of, um, military stuff. Didn't expect to go looking at the military as an example, but I found a really great, some great examples took me there. But no, I don't have any doubts because I, I don't have any, um, I don't have any, like, I'm not trying to do it in a particular way. I'm not, I'm not. Doubt would have a corresponding fear. And you yeah, I'm, well, I'm just quite, I'm quite happy to see where it takes me. Yeah. And I'm writing about what I'm learning. And um, Do you think that stifles a lot of people that they, they have a fear which maybe is an inner fear, not something based on any substance out there, maybe a fear of rejection or... Um, yeah, and yeah, but by the same token, that can also work for a lot of people. You know, so I know a lot of people who have built great companies because they're deeply insecure and they need to prove themselves so they build a great company. There are great musicians who are fabulous musicians because they were deeply insecure and they needed a way to express themselves and, and um, you know, and that was, that was something that they could do. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to write fear off as a bad thing. Um, sometimes that fear or that insecurity actually can also be a, um, a great, you know, a great reason to, to double down and do something well. Great point. Great point. 
So if you were to, to give some advice to, to your younger self, as they say, given your, your successes and the, in your words, continual failing as, a, as a, an entrepreneur, yeah. could you maybe share with us a, a couple of pieces of advice that um, the youngster would yeah, probably get into a fitness routine um, because it's really hard after you lose a bit of a fitness routine to get back into it. You know, I, I built the business at the expense of my health and fitness in, in many years and now as a dad with young kids, I'm finding it very difficult to get to the gym or to, you know, to be disciplined as, you know, it's very easy to go to the gym three or four times a week, you know, free kids. You know, so so that would definitely be uh, be something get into some sort of a mindfulness routine. So, you know, um, if you're getting into the world of entrepreneurship, you're going to be entering into a world of stress, anxiety, pressure, deadlines. Um, Complexity is probably the other thing. Like even if you take out words like stress and pressure and, and all that, just complexity. Businesses have a lot of moving parts and the more successful you become, the more moving parts. So business is one of these very frustrating things that the the better you get, the, the harder it is, not the easier. Um, in the same way, boxing, if you keep winning at boxing, you end up facing bigger and bigger people who punch you in the face harder and entrepreneurship tends to be the same. So uh, so having a mindfulness, you know, learning skills around meditation, uh, clearing the mind, being able to internally recognize that you're moving into an unhealthy stress or overwhelm or you know, that you, you know, that your head's just not in the game and being able to regulate and, and figure out, okay, wait a second, I need to take half an hour and walk around the block and, um, and just take a few deep breaths here, you know, so that I'm not going to say something that's not the right thing to say or, you know, or act out because I'm just frustrated. Um, so those kind of habits are, are really great to get into early. And going back to bringing our, our children up, can you share some thoughts as to how early we as parents might want to consider our child's financial future? And I just had a conversation just to contextualise that at that point with somebody the other day and we were, we were trying to put a number on the amount of money that is locked up or in child savings accounts. Yeah. Rotting away below the level of inflation. Yeah. Um, and the values that teaches our children is to save and leave park it in the hands of others for 15 years. It's a tricky one, this one, because I know young people who, you know, I'm friends with some very wealthy families and uh, giving young people money is actually not necessarily a good thing. So it's very, very common, especially in the in the very, very wealthy families, that kids feel very demotivated, deflated. I know, I know a young guy who is heir to hundreds of millions um, they have houses all over the world. They have, um, yeah, I mean, they have ridiculously productive assets that just keep producing millions per month. And, you know, this kind of thing for him is, well, why would I go do this or why would I go do that? Because, you know, it's not going to really do anything or make a difference to my life. Um, and, you know, really struggles with, you know, kind of trying to find purpose and direction and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, the kind of goal is, you know, to what degree or what end am I doing this for? Am I doing it to buy them good education, doing it to get them on the housing ladder? Uh, am I doing it uh, to give them a backstop financially if they need it and, and they ask for it? Am I going to tell them about it? Am I not going to tell them about it? Am I doing it about financial education and let them drive it? 
Um, and for me, I feel, you know, anything that's education-based tends to be really positive. So, you know, teaching them about setting up regular savings plans, understanding the power of compounding interest, you know, understanding, you know, how, how to buy a house, uh, how to save for a deposit, finding other people's money, um, all of those kind of things I think are really, really positive. You know, what I've done with my kids is I've got uh, little savings accounts that we put money aside and, the, you know, unless they listen to this podcast, they really won't know about that. But, you know, creating some backstop uh, money and, and, and education money and, you know, there's going to be certain times where, you know, they might have a business idea and we can go 50-50 on some of the setup costs it might not be a lot of money, but it might be five thousand pounds that we and I. It, there might be things that I know that are going to fail, but actually the lesson will be worth it. So, you know, that's the sort of stuff I'm putting putting money aside for. The other thing too is I'm not necessarily hell bent on my kids becoming entrepreneurs or working in the family business. I really encourage them if you know if they want to become filmmakers or mathematicians or scientists or engineers. Yeah, if that's where their curiosity takes them, that's totally fine as well. In which case, I'd love the opportunity to just help them get on the housing ladder and, and have a have some sort of a property uh, to fall back on um, or to, you know, if they, if they want to do that, um, you know, those kind of things would be, would be helpful. Some of the fun things that I'm trying to do, though, is to talk positively about money. Um, so just even the language that I use around money. So when my little boy says to me, you know, Daddy, where are you going? I say, oh, I'm going to work. I always put a big smile on my face. And he says, oh, what's work? And I said, well, work is where I get to create things and I get to make things and I write books and I give talks and I have friends. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I have to go to work and, you know, I've got to pay the bills, I've got to drudge. Whereas I'm saying, you know, I'm saying to him, you know, oh, daddy's get, daddy gets to go to work today. How exciting, you know, I'm, I'm off to have a lot of fun. So, you know, I just want to set him, set up that he doesn't have in the back of his head that, you know, that work is this horrible thing that you have to do. And, um, you know, I'm really careful to talk about money in a positive, in a positive light, you know, that, um, that, you know, money allows you to give to people. It allows you to buy things for people, allows you to help people. You know, money's a form of energy. You know, it's, it's a, it's just a measure of time. You know, kind of. Yeah, you know. So, so I I do those kind of things, and um, and always when we spend money, it's with gratitude. So, you know, so let's pay the lady the money, you know, and I let him do the do the payments and all that sort of stuff, and and you know, thank you very much, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. So I uh, really appreciate your time um, coming down to see us. How can well, a lot of people, if they're interested in the books, they're all on Amazon. So um, Daniel Priestley, if you do a search, Daniel Priestley uh, in Amazon, you'll get the, the books. And you know, by, by all means, read the five-star reviews. Don't read the one or two-star reviews there. I don't know who who that was, but uh, if I find them, um, connect on Twitter, connect on Instagram is a great way uh, to to do that. Checking out the blog keypersonofinfluence.com, uh, or if you want to have a look at some of the work we do, uh, it's dent.global. Is a you know you can kind of shoot off into YouTube video case studies or download. We've just released a report where we've done research into sixteen thousand entrepreneurs and and what correlates successful outcomes um so all of that's kind of on on dent.global 
Thank you for listening to the Property Portfolio Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that it inspired you on the next leg of your journey. If you've got any questions or comments, why not reach out to us at our Facebook page, Equa Academy. Also, don't forget to register for free access to hundreds of property development videos and templates over at equaacademy.co.uk and we'll see you in next week's episode. Thank you.